1: Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Laura Lee Abbey, a writer and the star and subject of a new documentary podcast series from Paradiso Media called Seventeen, Conversations with My Teenage Self. Laura's essays have also been featured in Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, and Vice. Laura, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: I'm so glad and, and grateful that you're here to spend a little time um, giving advice with us, especially because like today's letters, I think are really like, I, 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 they sent me back to high school, at least the first one did. Um, and there's some really like big issues here that, you know, involve questions of, uh, you know, where can I direct my empathy? Um, what are assumptions that I might make about, um, certain perspectives and, uh, how can I be useful without trying to overload anyone with too much at one time? So, I'm glad that you're here with me today because I think I'm going to need some help.
0: I'm actually glad I'm here too because I feel like you are so patient and thoughtful um, with your reactions, and I'm such like a hothead. Uh, so I'm just here to kind of watch the master and pop in whenever I can offer anything, any help. Okay.
1: <laughs> I, I'm happy to go with that setup. I'll, we'll <laughs> we'll do the the good and bad routine. Um, would you mind reading that first letter? Sure.
0: Okay. Former bully, currently frightened. I'm a former mean girl. I'm from a very small town, and it seemed like the social structure was bully or be bullied in school. Once I moved out for college, I made more friends and realized that being cruel and judgmental was not the only way to have friends. I went to therapy and worked on changing my behavior and thought patterns. I now believe I am a kind and open-minded person. However, when I moved and had the opportunity to start over, I never told anyone about what a bully I was as a child and teen, including my wife who has told me how traumatizing being bullied as a child was. Miraculously, my son's kindergarten class is still in person, though his lovely teacher left recently for maternity leave. When I met his substitute, I didn't recognize her, but she was passive-aggressive toward me at drop-off. At pickup, she revealed that she was a girl I had bullied horribly for years, and she'd become a teacher in the hopes of standing up for bullied students. She said, I tried to kill myself because of you, and you don't even remember me. I, of course, felt terrible and apologized, but she didn't want to hear it. And though my son was away collecting his things, other parents I have a good rapport with were looking at us curiously. I'm now terrified of this teacher treating my son badly because she hates me and telling people who I used to be and ruining my place in the community. And worse, my wife finding I was the kind of person who made her school years hell. I want to take my son out of her class, but I can't think of a reason without telling my wife everything. How do I deal with this without losing everything because of someone I no longer am?
1: I hope it doesn't feel like I'm making light of this when I say like this feels like the premise for like a prestige eight episode dramedy series on HBO like just maximum intensity maximum like drama at the school drop off line really high stakes I feel like there is room here to address the sort of pretty straightforward question of how do you handle your kid in this situation? How are you handling drop-off? How do you interact with the school? Before we get into the huge questions about what type of person I am, whether I was bad or am good, or whether I need to think of those as two different people, how do you deal with having to see someone who doesn't want you to have any contact with them? Like those are all big thorny things. But I, I think at the heart of it, there's a question of, right now of um, I have an issue with my son's teacher. I am going to drop off and pick off right now, and I don't know that that's going to continue working. Does that feel appropriate to you to think about like treating the logistical administrative issue first? Because like, to me, it just seems like as difficult and real as all of this is, there's also the pretty straightforward sentiment, which is just your son goes to the school, you need to be able to pick him up and drop him off. And anyone who works at that school needs to be able to also do that without getting into intensely angry personal conversations with any student's or student's parents. Um, And you can, I think, achieve that. Does that seem reasonable? Does that seem like totally divorced from the bigger issue to you?
0: Um, Yeah, when I first was thinking about... this letter, I was kind of breaking it down into like issue number one, issue number two. So there's that definitely a few things. Um, and that, yeah, logistically, I have a small child and I totally get it. And yeah, that there are there are just simple logistics to it, t- completely apart from all everything else in that letter. So I think it's absolutely right to address
1: that. So then, especially given that you have a child yourself, what do you think would be the first step in terms of the logistic addressing? Would it be get in touch with the school administration? Would it be ask your partner to switch drop-off and pickup duties? Would it be, you know, try to find out more about when the other teacher is coming back? Where would you start there?
0: I would try and have a conversation with the current teacher um, and try to kind of clear the air there, which seems like it's going to be really hard to do. So yeah, it might be easier to just, off the bat, if it's possible to rearrange the schedule slightly, kind of switch up your pickup and drop off with your spouse um, and kind of put the real handling of all of that out of the way for a little bit. Um, yeah, I feel like once you get school administration involved, that's when things get really tricky. Um, so, yeah, it might it might just start with a conversation with this particular teacher who might kind of be horrified to think it sounds like she wants to defend children. So she, she might say, of course, I'm going to treat your son well and with respect. But you know, at the same time, the letter writer is correct in, in worrying about him. Um, I don't know if that's helpful. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I think that that is,
1: I think that I, my inclination is to say don't try to speak to this teacher directly again, especially not by yourself, partly because you know, it sounds like she's made it clear she doesn't want to hear an apology. But partly also because like, and this is one of those difficult things, I sometimes refer to this as like when somebody takes a situation where they were maybe completely in the right and then they downgrade themselves to only like 70 or 60 or 50% (laughs) right by reacting the wrong way. Um, That always really frustrates and makes me sad. Not like frustrated at that particular individual, but just it's so hard when somebody who would normally be in a position that I would feel like, total sympathy for then does something that's like, ah, but you, you can't do that despite the understandable provocation. So like what I'm really focused on in this moment is I really, really feel for the teacher in this situation. It is not okay to announce loudly enough that other parents and students can hear at school drop-off that your own childhood bully made you try to kill yourself. Like, that's just like loudly referring to suicidality in a kind of like angry tone in front of the kids and others. Again, I don't want to like blow that up in terms of like the children, you mentioned something painful and thorny in front of the children. And now they're all going to collapse. Just like that needs to not happen again. She shouldn't have done that. I, I really understand everything that she might've felt in that moment. And it would really have been okay for her to say, you need to not talk to me. You made my life hell, leave me alone. But taking it that step further was not, a, and again, like, I don't say that to be like, and now you can like try to get her in trouble. I don't want you to do that. Um, But that does suggest that her ability to focus on the job in front of her with this additional weight might be in question. And that's really difficult, right? Because like, I hate the sense of like, oh, and this this woman that you bullied the hell out of is now, you know, uh, somebody who's like, Fitness to do her job. I'm also questioning, so I don't love that either. But just like again, my sort of default is, despite whatever the provocation may be, you know, there's certain things that you shouldn't say very, very loudly at school pickup, um, and and that is one of them. So I think that certainly, I think trying to talk to her alone would not be good for either one of you. Um, so the options, as I would see them, would be trying to make it really clear that you're giving her a wide berth. If that doesn't work, I I think then at that point, it might be time to think about talking to the administration just because, again, this is like a logistical issue. You need to be able to pick your kid up from school. You need to be able to do it without having like painful and unpleasant and unnecessary interactions. And it's sort of an open question to me whether or not if you do continue to go to pick up and give her a wide berth, if she will also give you a wide berth. My hope is that she will. My guess is that, you know, once she had that kind of, like, first outburst, she would feel like, I didn't like the way that that made me feel. I want to stay away from this person. Um, My hope is that that would be the next step. But I think beyond that, you know, unfortunately, it would have to be the school administration if she does say something like that. Again, just because, like, your your son needs to be able to go to school, and you need to be able to pick him up. Like, that's really, really outside of the bounds to me of the bigger questions. But I'm also aware now we've spent a lot of time talking about the logistical aspect of it. So maybe it's a good moment to sort of segue into how did you feel reading this about the letter writer's goals in terms of, I really would like to not tell my wife. Do you think that that's reasonable, achievable, good?
0: I felt really just torn up about this desperation to hide this past from her wife. I mean, all marriages are different, all relationships are different and you know as individuals we are absolutely allowed to have things that we want to keep to ourselves but part of my favorite thing about having my wife is whatever I've done she is my ally and um good bad your wife is your is there to support you and so I I put in like glaring red letters like talk to your wife like that's the first step here because if you're going to you know even in terms of logistics if you're going to ask your wife to maybe do drop off and pick up she's going to want to know why and i think your wife wants to love you and be there for you and so part of part of being this whole person together with her and letting her in is being able to say this is who I was back then because that person is still part of who you are. Even if you're like, I've gone to therapy, everything has changed. That person still created the person you are today. And that's the person that she chose to spend her life with and raise children with. So I think really, obviously you have to handle the logistics of you know your kindergartner going to school. But I think that this conversation ha- with your wife has to happen um, as soon as possible.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I am very much with you on that front, not least because if enough of the other parents overheard enough of your conversation that they were looking over at you, and it sounds like this was fairly, you know, intense, um, my guess is your wife's gonna hear about it. You know, if that happened at school drop off, people would talk about it. And I don't say that to like make you panic or say, it's the only thing they'll ever talk about forever. And they will never ever be willing to even entertain the possibility that you are a worthwhile person who deserves to live in society. I just mean, that's going to be a topic of conversation for a little while. People are going to be curious. And I think that the odds that it will get back to her are very good. And um, that's even without raising the possibility that something else might happen at a future drop-off or pickup. So I think just like as a strategy, the hope that you can get away with not telling your wife anything is not going to work and it will cause you unnecessary additional stress and anxiety as you try to keep an increasingly impossible secret. And so I think that as difficult as that conversation or more likely those conversations are going to be, they will also at least carry with them the release and relief of now she knows. So I agree. You should tell her not least because I also think you should talk about your different options for pick up a drop off together um, and whether or not it would be possible to, to make a switch of some kind. You know, letter writer, I don't know a lot about whether you knew about this woman's suicide attempt at the time. I don't know the nature of what happened beyond the sort of like broader strokes that you've given me. So some of this might be um, information that you will have to supply your wife but I would really encourage you in talking to her you know start with just the bare bones like what happened um, and the problem that you need to figure out with her which is this and that way you'll have kind of like an automatic structure for this conversation that's not just i feel terrible I'm worried I'm bad um because I think that that kind of, language can be really difficult to get any um, purchase on when it comes to thinking, what can I do? Then it can just turn into this sort of like, either I'm bad and I must feel shame, which is sort of makes it difficult for me to think of doing or changing anything. Or I find the prospect of that shame unbearable and I must find a way to say, I'm not that person. I'm good. And then I just can't hear truth um, and I have to push it away from me. So I think To tell her the outlines of what you told us will be a useful framework for you as you then say, you know, I ran into somebody that I bullied and she remembered me. And it wasn't something that we both laughed off. It was bad. Um, I really, really hurt her. And I feel, as I tell you this, shame, fear, partly shame because of how I hurt someone, also partly shame because I got called out for it, partly shame because I had hoped that that was something that I could leave behind me like an old jacket. And I found that I couldn't. Um, I, I think that will be important for you to say, and not just to your wife. I think it would also be good for you to maybe seek out a counselor at some point, a counselor who can help you wrestle with uh, the reality that you really, really, really hurt at least one person when you were yourself a child and a young person. Um, and, and what what you can do short of convince her I'm good and make her like me again, because that is not going to happen. And also, um, actually not the way that you are going to try to um, change your life as a result. You know, letter writer, there is in your letter real willingness to engage with and square with the truth. I think that's good. There are also moments where I see some sort of familiar language of sort of skittering away from the edge of something scary. Um, and so when you say, You know, when I moved, I had the opportunity to start over. I never told anyone about what a bully I was as a child and teen. Um, And until we get to the section, including my wife, where I I would maybe change that, I would say, you know, I wouldn't put that as high up on the list as some of the other stuff here. That is understandable. Um, Whatever work you may have in front of you right now, I don't want you to feel like the end goal is for the rest of your life, you tell everyone the second you move somewhere or you make a new friend, by the way, you must know this about me. Um, I don't think that's a reasonable ethical standard to to have for yourself. Um, I I can understand why never telling anyone and trying to stop thinking about it has made you feel isolated. So my goal is for you to start to feel some freedom in talking about this in like limited and careful ways with appropriate outlets. Um, But, you know, The goal is not for you to start carrying a bell around and saying I was a bully in high school or I was a bully in elementary school and middle school and high school and the first few months of college until I started changing my behavior. That is not the the goal here. It's also though true, you know, you say that you believe that you're now a kind and open minded person, which is good. And I also want you to know that that is a good thing in its own right. That is a valuable accomplishment. And that's also not a permanent state of being. Um, you know, that is a, an aspiration, a, a semi-permeable condition. Um, even kind and open-hearted people are capable of being evasive or unkind or selfish or thoughtless or cruel. So I would encourage you not to think of, I used to be bad, but now I'm good. I used to be capable of this kind of harm and now I'm not in part because that's just such an all-or-nothing way of thinking of yourself as either worthy of love and connection and care or bad and deserve to be cast out. And that doesn't serve you or others well. And then, you know, you say, I don't want to lose everything because of someone I no longer am. You know, people have a lot of different ideas about like the fluctuating nature of identity. And I understand that part of what you're saying here is I'm very different from the person I was at 17. That seems to me like a reasonable claim, but you know, leaving aside the question of whether or not you're still the same person, let's go ahead and say you're the, you're the closest thing to number two. You know, like if you're not that person, no one's that person. Um, You're the closest uh, living relative of that person, let's say. So I, I think it can sometimes be, you know, meaningful to distinguish between the choices that you make habitually today and the choices you made habitually as a 15-year-old. But I think that it's also a little too much to try to say that person's gone. You won't find her here. She doesn't live here anymore. Um, Somebody has to answer for that. And that doesn't mean that you have to think of yourself the way this woman thinks of you forever. It doesn't mean you have to punish yourself forever. But it does mean you have to take seriously what she experienced from knowing you. Um, and, and I think so much of the fear in this letter is, if I let myself see myself through her eyes, I will just hate myself forever. And that's the only way to take seriously how I hurt her. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that you can seriously engage with the ways that you hurt her and um, hold that one seriously and think about what are some ways that I can try to make a living amends that does not involve directly contacting her or putting her in harm's way. And what are other ways that I can um, continue to try to live like on a frank and open basis where this isn't the biggest secret I'm trying to hide, and it's also not the first thing that I want anyone to know about me? And those are big and thorny questions, and I'm kind of realizing I've already gone a little bit over on this letter, and it's probably time to start wrapping it up. So I I think now having gone in a really circuitous way around my original answer, I'll say the first move is to talk to your wife. Um, The second move is to talk to a therapist. And then I would be you know, careful about proceeding with the possibility of talking to anyone else at the school about the pickup and drop-off issue unless things become untenable. I think it would be best to – like if your goal is like I don't want to make this woman's life any more difficult, um, that doesn't mean that if she starts shouting at you every day at 9 and then again at 3.30, you just have to like grin and bear it. At that point, it would be appropriate to – In the school administration and ask for some more separation. But if you don't have to do that, I think look for ways to avoid it.
0: I think my final thought, too, is again, because you came back to that line of, I don't want to lose everything. And I think when we face a situation where we feel threatened or a secret's going to come out, we have this all or nothing response. And I don't. I think it, that this fear of talking to your wife, you're, you're not going to lose everything by having an open and honest conversation with her. So so first you kind of have to take that high drama down and remind yourself, like, I am loved. I love myself. My wife loves me. I have this beautiful family and I'm not going to lose it all um, if I go ahead and have this conversation that I really don't want to have.
1: Yeah. And I can't promise that I know what your wife's reaction will be like. I don't think that it's likely that she will say This changes everything. I no longer care about you. I want out. Um, I also don't want to like promise you there's no way that this will change the way that she feels about you. But I will say that regardless of what may or may not change in the short and in the medium term as a result of your disclosure, as long as you have this idea that I can only keep the things that I have if I convince people that I am a version of myself that I don't really believe myself to be, as long as I keep this one secret. Then you don't, you know, what you fear losing, you already don't have. Sorry, that's a little bit awkwardly put. But um, if you truly think that I can only have this relationship with my wife, I can only have this relationship with my son, I can only have this kind of relationship with my friends and colleagues, um, if they don't know something that I believe is true about me or has been true about me. Then you've already lost a lot. Um, And I think that there is a version of your life where I don't know exactly what happens between you and your wife. I don't know exactly what happens between you and your peers, but where you can squarely acknowledge and admit that you did something more than once, a lot as a child and as a teenager that really, really, really hurt someone. And um, you will be able to do that without immediately going into, but that's not me anymore, or somebody else did that, or here's all the context for why I felt that way, where you will be able to say, I did that, that was me, and it was wrong. And there's always that part of you that wants to rush in afterwards with, and it was wrong, and I'm really sorry, and I do all these things to make up for it, or, and it was wrong, and I didn't understand, and I grew. And those things can be true, but you do not have to rush to say them. You can sit squarely in, this is what I did, and it was wrong um, without trying to immediately make it okay. And without feeling like this has destroyed my character, that can actually become the bedrock of your character. You know, there's a, an expression in recovery communities that has to do with, um, you know, if you work this kind of, uh, ongoing program of trying to live on a sane basis and, and make things right where you can, You will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And there's this idea that the things that you have felt the most shame about will not become like great things that you love. But because you cannot change them, you must find a way to live with them. Um, And thinking about ways to make acknowledgement of those moments without flinching um, a foundation for your character So that you can say, eventually, I can turn this to good use, even though that's not the same thing as saying it all worked out for the best, um, I think is a very valuable and meaningful goal. And I think it's a possible one. So... Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With that, I will move us into our second letter, and the subject is a healthy distance. My husband is polyamorous. I am hardly monoamorous. I adore him. I celebrate the way that he loves people, and this arrangement works very well for me. We have excellent sex multiple times a week, but I'm probably in the aromantic range. Three years into marriage, nearly a decade into our partnership, my husband has begun to express concern that I haven't warmed up to polyamory, mentioning when his partners find me attractive and would be, quote, interested in spending time altogether, and has suggested friends of mine that he believes are interested in me. I've told him that I find this off-putting, and he's backed off, although one of his partners continues to be overly familiar with me. His bringing up the topic has made me hyper-aware of this dynamic. And has raised a lot of specters of my own inadequacy in romantic relationships that had seemed to be put to bed by my happy marriage. I feel more paranoid by the day. And for once, I'm not sure how to talk to my husband about something. I'm sincerely not jealous. I just don't want to be anything but his wife. How do I have this conversation? Do I have to talk to his other partners too? I'm passingly friendly with them, but not close. There's real trauma in my history related to, quote, being brought into a polycule when I was young that he knows about, but I don't want to have to tell anyone else about it. Thoughts, reactions, questions about hardly monoamorous, because that one took me a minute.
0: Uh, Yeah, a lot of these, I am not super familiar with the polyamory world, Um, so a lot of these words I don't fully understand, but my initial takeaway is like, all caps underline, you don't have to talk to anyone that you don't feel comfortable talking to about your past, about how you feel. There's, there's no rule that says you have to speak to your husband's partners about anything, I, I would assume.
1: Yeah. I think it's especially like, I think sometimes people can feel like I'm allowed to say no to something or say I don't want something if I can justify it with something pretty upsetting. Like I've got the trauma. And I don't say that to make light of it. I just mean like there's this sense of um, I've got to be able to pull something out of my back pocket that's like end the conversation, big trauma, the trauma wins. And that can be really painful for a number of reasons, not least because it can make a person feel like they are obligated to disclose something really painful and traumatic in that context. You just don't. It's actually – you, you never have to discuss it again if you don't want to. Um, it would be perfectly reasonable for you to feel this way, even if you had somehow made it through your whole life without ever being traumatized. Um, if that had never happened to you, if you didn't consider yourself monoamorous, if you considered yourself something else, it would still be wonderful, fine, appropriate, possible for you to say, that's not what I want. So you don't even have to bring up that severe trauma with your husband if you would rather not. Um, it sounds like you've already talked to him about it to some length. Um, you're free to bring it up if you think it would be useful or if you want him to know a little bit more about the context. But you get to say no. You have a right to say no. You have a reason to say no. Um, or rather, since it's not exactly like your husband is asking you for something incredibly specific that you need to say no to, more like you want to have a conversation with him that clarifies what you want out of uh, your shared arrangement. Um rather than just saying no to a simple request. But you get to say all this without any need to resort to because I have this identity or because I experienced this trauma. You can just say, here's what I want. And again, you can. You're free to mention those things if that feels useful to you, but you absolutely do not have to.
0: It also sounds like the letter writer is in this polyamorous marriage where um, she is like, I just want to be married to you. That's all I want to do. And you have and we've agreed that you're allowed to have these other relationships. And it sounds like that's how she sees things and wants things. But it sounds like the husband right now it is more, I want us both to have these polyamorous relationships. I want us to share in maybe some, all of these relationships. And that's where it just feels like there's maybe a gray area or the communication has broken down. Relationships can evolve. So maybe it started out when you got together or got married yeah, we'll have these polyamorous relationships together and people grow and change. And you have a shifting view now of what you want out of your marriage. And so now you have to come back together and find this this way of communicating about it and, and making sure that you both feel safe and, and satisfied with the relationship you have.
1: Yeah. I, 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 that's a great point too. There, there's real opportunity here also to ask your husband like, what is your ideal version of our relationship? Like, you know, if you had your druthers, would we all be like getting brunch together on the weekends? Would we be occasionally like having threesomes together? Would I like, not because you are going to do any of those things, but because it sounds like his idea of warming up to polyamory involves a higher level of like engagement and friendliness than you're interested in. And it will be useful for you to know more about what his hopes, his expectations and his ideals are and have been. Um, And then for you to also say, I want you to know, like, what warmed up looks like for me. Um, It does not involve the following things. And I, I think that will be useful for you also to get a sense of what he's thinking and what he has been hoping because there can be probably ways in which maybe he's concerned that, you know, You say you're okay, but you don't want to spend any time with anybody or see anybody. I'm worried that means you're like kind of tightly saying, it's fine, it's fine. But you actually feel tense and avoidant. Um, And for you to be able to say, you know, I don't feel tense and avoidant. I'm genuinely pleased and happy that you have these relationships. I don't want more than like passing hellos with any of them. And that's not because I'm actually not fine. And I'm like really, really like gritting my teeth. It's because I, you know, and you can kind of fill in the blank there. I love the alone time. I love seeing you do something that makes you feel excited and happy, but that is totally different from something I want. Um, And I'm really like pleased and happy to watch you do something from the sidelines. And again, like he might be able to share with you at that point. Well, that makes me feel a little isolated and you can, you know, hear him out and say like, you know, how can we find other ways to like reconnect and spend valuable time together that doesn't look like me becoming besties with all of your other partners um, because I do care about you and I want to invest in our marriage but it, it's I don't want to be close to your other partners um and then you know you say one of his partners continues to be overly familiar with me I don't know what that means I don't know if you're like I don't want you to call me by my Christian name address me as like doctor so-and so or if they're like texting you or what but whatever it is communicate it uh, if you don't want to communicate it directly, you can talk about it with your husband. I I tend to feel like communicating directly is a good thing, even if as a general rule, you don't want to talk to your husband's partners a lot. But like whatever it is, name it. Say that you don't like it. Um, be polite, obviously. Um, but if it's whatever it is, say what it is. If somebody's being too familiar with you, tell them to stop. That's the, that's the only way to get people to stop. And even that one doesn't always work. <laughs> yeah, I hope it does. But yeah, just, I mean, my, my hope, my guess is that the partner is just trying to be friendly and maybe even thinks you're cool. But even if they have good intentions, you're perfectly entitled to say like, hey, we're not close like that. Don't do that. And as long as you're like basically polite about it, just letting mm-hmm. somebody know, here's what I don't want from you. Is useful information. It helps them. Like my guess is that they will be glad to know and possibly a little mortified to find that what they were hoping was like friendly, you know, connection you were annoyed by.
0: I feel like just there's this innate thing to make everyone else comfortable. And it's so tough to remind yourself that you are really responsible for your own comfort, safety, happiness. And so even if it doesn't feel good saying to your husband or their partner, like not interested... When you say it, you're going to feel better.
1: Yeah, and my sense is, letter writer, part of why this has been really difficult for you uh, is that it it hasn't been the case often in your marriage that you've had to like bring up a difficult disparity in expectations. And part of you had sort of hoped, wow, maybe I'm sort of done feeling insecure because my marriage is so good. Um, and I'm I'm sorry. I wish that were the case. I'm glad, frankly, that you got a couple of years of like relief from insecurity. I think that's fantastic. That's better than a lot of people get. But as as you now already know, um a very happy marriage does not put to bed uh one's personal insecurities or fears. Um it's just a happy marriage. It it can't do more than that. So, you know, I I think my my sense here is part of you feels, you know, just afraid to share vulnerable, insecure feelings because that's scary. And then also maybe there's that fear of I'm worried it will be misunderstood and misinterpreted as jealousy. And I don't know how to communicate on the one hand, I'm really thrilled about your other partners and I really want a lot of distance and I don't want to have other partners of my own. Maybe partly because you worry that other people would assume that if one person has multiple partners and the other doesn't, that that must necessarily mean that one is happy and the other isn't you know, if that's at play, I would just really encourage you to let that idea go. The goal here is not to have like a perfect 50-50 split. The goal here is for you to both figure out what brings you joy um, and what you want. Um, and then beyond that, you know, if you're afraid that your husband will hear this as jealousy, I would I would lead with that. I think I would lead with, I've been feeling really at odds and disoriented about this. And I couldn't quite figure out why, because you've been pretty, you know, clear and kind and warm towards me. It's not that you've been overriding my desires or or asking anything like wildly inappropriate. I couldn't quite figure out why I was feeling so agitated. And one of the things that I realized was, I want to be able to communicate to you how important distance, autonomy, and like a sort of opt-in uh, default rather than an opt-out default are important to me. And I want you to hear that and respect it rather than think I'm just actually jealous of your other partners. My fear is that my my needs on that front will get misunderstood as jealousy. And so that's part of why I've been unsure how to proceed. And I think that that will help you feel a little bit less isolated in your conversation. And for you to just say, you know, I don't want closeness with these people. And I want to hear, I'm available to hear how that makes you feel. But like my goal, my hope is like we say hi to each other occasionally in passing. And then I go do something that I want to do for the afternoon and you two go off and do something. And maybe we talk about it afterwards. Maybe we don't. But I don't want to be, you know, getting meals together. I want to go on like fun group trips. Um, And, you know, maybe you have felt like in the past that when you were passing along, somebody found me attractive or somebody wants to get together, that you were trying to connect, that you were trying to share something with me. I want you to know that I don't want that. And so I'm going to ask you not to pass those things along. Um, that's important to me. That's necessary to me. This distance, this space, this sense of a sort of separation of, of powers in this moment is part of what enables me to feel that joy and happiness for you. And part of what enables the like, love that we're able to share that's between the two of us when we come back together. Um, And I need those things Those are important to me They make me feel safe They make me feel independent They make me feel secure in myself I think that that is Possible to say to your husband I think he will receive that well Even if he is initially also Sad or hurt Or whatever else May come up for him But just yeah You know Tell him that your version Of warmed up to polyamory Does not look like his And then figure out Where you two can compromise And figure out where He needs to respect Your boundaries I'm glad we have a little bit of a break because I still just feel like oh that first one just killed me. Yeah. That's just hard. Do you have any like any thoughts about like just generally how do you think about your own past beyond either I'm not that person that person's gone or I have to carry it around with me every day? Like do you have any sense of like what's a what's a useful way to carry around your past with you?
0: I am someone who is I call myself a loudmouth because I kind of do carry that person around for better or worse. And sometimes it's laughing at her, which isn't always nice. Um, but sometimes we have to laugh at ourselves and being honest about, I talk about a lot about all the things I didn't know when I was younger. And even now, there's things that 20 years from now I'll be like, oh, you were so naive. <laughs> you know, so it's it's part of growing and changing, but also having this love and tenderness for this this person that you were back when you were that person um and so yeah i i do talk openly about the good the bad the ugly and i do try to carry that around and and be you know mindful of it and and the things that i didn't that i see that i don't didn't like about myself back then those are that i was very insecure when i was younger and it took me so many years to learn confidence. And that's not because I became this perfect person with all the answers. And I just look in the mirror and I'm like, damn, you're so beautiful. It's That's not it at all. It wasn't really a physical change. It's this this change that you have to make inside of yourself. And so I think it's important to check in with with this past self and, and let them be a part of you, even if it, you don't always like what you see.
1: Yeah, I, I think it can be so challenging to try to think about, how do I take seriously somebody who I hurt and who does not think well of me and may hate me? How do I like take that seriously without also saying, if I take it seriously, I am also required to feel the same way about myself for the rest of my life? Because it can be so challenging to think about, like how do I accept somebody else's right to hate me and not forgive me and not think well of me? And how do I Grapple with that seriously, and and with a sort of like ethical respect for that position, without also then collapsing into "I've got to feel that way about me forever now," um, and that's so difficult to do, especially when you are thinking about a, a younger version of yourself. Um, and you know, I think there's a reason that people will often do a lot to try to avoid it because it can just feel like either I can join you in hating myself forever. Or I have to find a way to convince myself that you're wrong, or it's about something else that wasn't me. And I think really like engaging with former versions of the self is incredibly hard. And and I don't wonder that there are so many different ways we try to deflect it.
0: Oh, yeah. We instinctively, like we go on the defense too, right? Like, oh, yeah, but, but. And it's hard to, you said this to the first letter writer, it's hard to sometimes sit with, this happened, period. There is no but. You don't have to go from there. You can just sit with that in the discomfort.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is incredibly difficult to do. I'm so curious. I know that your most recent project has had to do, you know, very much like dealing with a version of your 17-year-old self and and it has to do with like, you know, engaging with your 17-year-old diary. And I'm so curious, both, like, did you have that the whole time? Did you rediscover it? Was it like, this is my diary that I revisit periodically? Or was it like, I haven't seen this in fifteen years, and I'm blowing the dust off the cover, and I'm like excavating something that now surprises me.
0: It was a lot of excavation. I do occasionally kind of pop in and out of journals. A lot of times, it's if I'm really want the details of something and experience, and I'm like, I think this is when it happened. Um, but yeah, I hadn't really gone back to these high school journals, so I think initially I was like, oh, this will be fun. Being a teenager was so fun, and then you really start to get in there, and you're like, oh. Uh, It was actually not all fun. And there was like, I made a lot of mistakes. There is some trauma in there. There's, you know, you coming to terms with how I felt about myself and how those feelings of insecurity, how I behaved. Um, And so, yeah, it was there. The excavation process was hard because it's so easy to say, oh, I've had this great life. I have this great family. But that doesn't necessarily mean that adolescence wasn't. A challenge because it is for all of us. Even if you're the most popular person in school, if you're the bully, if you're the one being bullied, um, growing up is challenging. It t- turns out, surprise. Yeah, and it you know
1: you you have to find a way to live with yourself. Like it is not possible to say of oneself in the same way one might say of someone else. Fuck that guy. I'm just not going to think about him. Um, or she's the worst. I just don't wish her well. Like you can do that to other people. You can't really do that to yourself and also go on living in a sustainable way. So it's sort of like, well, what are we to do then? Um, mm-hmm. Which is um, uh, a really like thorny and interesting prospect. Well, I hope that the excavation process is, uh, you know, proceeding at a uh, sustainable and uh, ha- habitable pace. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show and spending some time with us. I hope you have a fabulous rest of the day and that no one yells at you or your cat.
0: Thank you. I don't even have a cat, so no one's going to be yelling at, at the Great, cat. Great, you're halfway there. For sure.
1: Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music, Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Yeah, and just, like, she brings this up to prove you're causing her stress. Like, why is she dating you? If she's walking around regularly saying, I've I've got proof that you cause me stress, and therefore it's cool when I, like, shout at you or the cat. What? Like... Yeah. Does she like you? I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound dismissive. It's just, like, I don't think your girlfriend likes you at all. I think she's mean, and I think she dislikes you, and I think she sees you as a sort of convenient punching bag, and... That's what she gets out of this. It's like she relieves whatever she feels bad about on you. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're
0: here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.